title of today's sermon is Inside Out, Inside Out Families. We want you to be bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. That's, that's the aim of today's message, is to help us re- see and recognize what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that work for us to be bigger inside than we are on the outside? And so we're going to look at somebody who was just that, and we're going to contrast that with the, uh, with the prodigal son and see a little bit of the opposite in, in those characteristics, okay? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go with me uh, to the book of Job. We're going to be in chapter 1. I want you to stick a marker in Luke 15 because we're going to flip back and forth, okay? But that's where we're going to be. As always, you can follow along on the screens, okay? So in Job chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, it says, There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. So verse 1 is talking about who he was on the inside, a man of perfect integrity. Would to God that that would be said about our church family, amen? That you would be bigger on the inside, a man and a woman of perfect integrity. People know there's no way you could possibly ever have a shade of something that would cause you to do wrong now that you are a believer. I'm not saying you don't have stuff in your past, but we've moved, moved on, amen? So he's talking about the inside, but now verse 2 shifts to focusing on the outside. It says that he had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the east. Then in verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, Satan comes to, to try to persuade the Lord to let him have his way. And he comes and he says, have you considered my servant Job? That's what God says when Satan walks in. Have you considered my servant Job? it's kind of like Ted and I are having a conversation and you know Ted comes in hey Ted sorry but you get to play the devil in this one have you I mean there was a few too many oh me's there okay so hey have, have you have you considered have you considered my servant Josh there's no one else like him right I mean, that that's it's kind of like saying chicken right what are you gonna have today I'm gonna have chicken hey Satan Welcome back. I mean, like, did you throw a party for him to come in? I'm not really sure how this all went down, but that's what he says. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Nobody else is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. I always found that verse interesting because God refers to himself in third person. You know, he fears God instead of it saying he fears me. That's probably so that when we read it, we don't read it like it's me, that it's God. But I always found that interesting. So the devil decides, hey, you know what? The reason Job is this man of perfect integrity and there's nobody else like him in all of the earth is because, God, of how big you've allowed him to get on the outside. If you will let me take away everything, then I'll show you just how big he is on the inside when he loses everything on the outside. So literally, if you read on through chapter 1, it says that Job has the worst day ever, right? It says that a messenger comes and tells him, hey, listen, Job, guess what? The Sabaeans, they stole all the donkeys. While he was yet speaking, another servant comes. Hey, a storm burned up all of the sheep. They're all gone, and I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. I mean, by now, we would all be having a panic attack, right? It's like, hey, this bank has burned to the ground. Hey, guess what? The stock market has failed, and all of your retirement is gone. While he was still speaking, another servant comes and says, hey, the Chaldeans, they stole the camels. Now the third bank that you had an investment in has totally been obliterated. While he was still speaking, this windstorm comes along, and it collapses the tent, and all your kids are dead. 
I alone have survived to tell you about it. So five servants. It said at the end of verse number two that he had many servants. Five are all that we know that are alive after all of this because each one said, I alone have survived. His kids are gone. His, his assets are gone. All of his belongings are gone. And yet verse 22 still says this. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Why was he able to do that? How? In the world, could Job still be that guy who didn't blame God for anything? Because let's face it, most of the time today, if we have a loved one who died that we didn't like it, what do we do? Well, I don't know why God let me down. I don't, I don't, I don't understand how God could have failed this. And yet it says he didn't sin or blame God for anything. He chose instead to be bigger on the inside than he was on the outside, regardless of what was taken away from him. Because he was a man of deep, devout character and integrity, he was bigger on the inside. The thing is, as we flip over to Luke chapter 15 to look at the prodigal son, what we're going to see in the life of the prodigal son are the opposite of that, okay? Here's Job, a man of perfect integrity, full of God. Here we're going to see the prodigal son, not the same. We're going to see in his life the four stages of development and maturation, okay? So if you've got kids or grandkids, you're going to find them a lot in this story. I won't point out your husbands and where they are. You can see that for yourself. But, but these four characteristics happen physically as well as spiritually in our journey, okay? And so I know I always have three points, and you're thinking four points, preacher, you better get after it. I am, okay? I'm already done with the intro. Here we go. Number one, the f- first stage is give me. Give me. I should have written it like we all say it, because I don't know anybody that says give me. We all say give me. It's not golf. It's not a gimme. You can just have it. We're get- you don't have to wait. No? A gimme. Give it to me. I want what's mine. Well, in the story of the prodigal son, that's what we see in Luke 15, 12. It says that the younger of them, of the two brothers, said to his father, give me my share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, the older brother could have done what he wanted, and he really shows up at the end of the story um, to be a horse's rear, you know, who can't, can't hack it that his brother has come home, but that's a whole different story because he had the same half. So these, these children uh, in life are born at this stage, right? Every kid is born at this gimme stage, amen? Every parent, we all hope that our kids grow out, grow out of it faster than everybody says. We all hope and we pray that that's the case. Sometimes it happens earlier on, but some of you may be saying, well, I have a 45-year-old who hasn't got past this yet. Perhaps you're married to somebody who hasn't got past the give me stage yet. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to heighten, uh, expand my, my marital counseling calendar this week at all, so that's not the case. But sometimes we deal with this, let's be honest, right? Give me. This is where we all start biologically and spiritually. Let's not be foolish enough to remember. Let's, you know, let's, let's remember, why did we get saved? It was really for selfish reasons if we're really gut level honest, right? Somebody convinced us that Jesus was better, hell was hot, and we didn't want to spend eternity there, right? I feel that way about the snow and the cold. I don't want to spend eternity there. You know, some people are like, oh, hell has to be hot. Okay, great. That's fine. For me, make it be the North Pole, and I'm out. You see what I'm saying? Like, we all have our own version of it. Walmart connected to Penn Square Mall is a really good representation of hell when Walmart only has one checker. You know what I'm saying? There you go. It's kind of like Saturdays, right, Becky? I mean, that's the way it works. That's hell to us. We think there's no way I want to go there. Well, guess what? If we're not careful, this give me attitude can lead us down some really wrong roads. 
Sometimes we, we feel this way. I want God, we, we, we get saved because we want God to, to forgive us of our sins, to spare us from that. Or we want God to spare us from our own issues that we brought into it, right? We want God to straighten out the mess that our lives have created. Man, I've been there, right? We are really good at praying those Hail Mary prayers. Oh, Lord, if you can do a miracle, I need you to do it now. I know I haven't prayed to you in the last six months since the last miracle Hail Mary that we needed, but Lord, you said, and all of a sudden we become theologians who know every scripture in the Bible, right? And God's just saying, I want you to be my kid. It's okay, right? Here's the thing, okay? God designed us this way. That's where we start. Nobody starts out at the very height of maturity. We all have to grow into that, okay? This is where every marriage starts. We all start at give me. Ladies, I hate to burst your bubble, but your husband got married to you so that you could give to him and meet his needs. Husbands, same thing. She got married to you so you could give to her. It's a process. It's the way it works. We all start there in that selfish motivation. But this is not where we end up. It's just the beginning. It's not where it all comes to an end. It's where we start. God designed us to start here but not to end end there. This is where we're supposed to get on the course and stay the course so that we mature. It's amazing to me, if we're honest, the way that we actually have our needs met is by meeting someone else's need. Husbands, if you really want your wife to take great care of you, then do a great job at taking care of her and watch things begin to kick in place. Same thing, ladies. It works. It is a constant flywheel. In the book Love and Respect, the author does a brilliant job of teaching about the principle of a flywheel and how that when, when we give love as men to our spouse and they reciprocate with respect, it causes this constant forward motion to happen in our marriage where we're moving together towards a common, common point. A, a principle of a flywheel means it doesn't need any energy to make it continue to run. That's what happens in our lives in our marriage when we do that. Same thing happens. We've got to begin to apply it so that we move on. In counseling, um, uh, the problem is here, let me back up. we got to move out of this stage because if not, we end up in counseling while we're on the road to divorce. And typically in counseling, you know what we say? They're just not meeting my needs. My needs are not being fulfilled, counselor. And what the counselor really should look back at you and say is, when was the last time you did something for her or for him that was completely out of your norm, but you were meeting a need for them regardless of what they did for you? Because that's what happens. I don't mean this to be harsh, but it's true. We all start selfish, and we have to move past this. It's especially noticeable with kids, right? Think back to it. My kids are growing up. I remember when Hayes was about a year and a half. He's about 18 months old. I had picked up one of his toys. He comes in the room, and he walks over to me and snatches it out of my hand. He said, that mine, Daddy. Well, all right then, buddy. That's typical for an 18-month-old, right? That's mine. Give it here. Mine. Mine, mine. Every time we, we sit down to watch a TV show, Hayes, what do you want to watch? Every time when he was about that age, you know what it was? Mouse. Oh, mouse, Daddy. Mouse. Pointing at Steve. Mouse, Daddy. Okay, fine. Why? Because he's a baby. That's what he's supposed to do is be a little bit selfish. I want mine, me, my mind. He never sat on my lap and looked at me and said, well, Father, you have been a good father to me, and I would like for you to pick the show that you would like to watch. <laughs> never once has that ever happened. Man, I wish that it would have. Dad, would you like to watch CSI tonight? Well, hey, thank you. No, it never happens. 
Why? Because they're in a gimme stage. They're in a, I've got to, this is not an indictment if you find yourself in this gimme stage right now. It's not an indictment at all. It's just where we start, but we've got to move on and mature past it and grow up. We start there with, give me what I want. That's where we start biologically, and it's where we start spiritually, and it's where we start in our marriages. But we've got to move past that. And the second phase is called use me. So you got give me and then use me. Use me. As Christians, we move to this level pretty easy, right? Because what do we say? God, I want you to use me. Man, that's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. But let's be honest. When we first start praying that prayer, it's still a little selfish. I remember when I finally had given my life to Jesus and answered the call to ministry, I would pray that prayer every Saturday night. Oh, Lord, use me. When my dad was going to be gone and I had to preach on Sunday. Oh, Lord, use me. So that they'll think that I'm a good preacher. So that they'll think that I'm anointed. So that, And it was still selfishly motivated, right? Eventually, we mature even past that, right? See, one of the things that happens when we start saying that prayer, it's out of selfish ambition. We're selfishly motivated. And that became an issue back in in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, when the first family fell. When they failed and they sinned before God, there were three things that entered in to humanity at that time. Shame, blame, and fame. Those three things are still around today, right? And we say, oh, Lord, use me, use me, use me. I want you to use me. When they fell, this became noticeable. And this is where we go as believers. God, I want you to use me, but my motive is I want the notoriety that goes with it. Lord, I want them to know that I am a man of God, a woman of God. Oh, I want them to use me as I sing so they'll think I'm one as I play, as I use my talents for you. That's what we want. We have selfish motivation. It's evident in Acts 8, 19, right? When Simon the sorcerer comes and he gets saved and he sees uh, uh, Peter and John as they're preaching and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them in verse 19, give me this power also that I may lay hands on many and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. I I want them to receive it. And what they said is, no, 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 no. They rebuked him, told him that he would die. I mean, he said all kinds of unkind things. His purpose wasn't to bless anybody. Instead, it was so that he could keep his notoriety and power that he had before. It's commonplace in our marriages, but in, in our, our journey of faith. But this also applies in our marriages, right? Because in the first phase of, phase of marriage, we see God, uh, we say, give me something that will make me happy. But in the next phase, we realize that no one person can genuinely make us happy. By the way, your spouse is never going to make you happy. You can have a happy marriage, but if you put all that pressure on your spouse, you take it off of where it belongs, and that's in Jesus, Because he alone is able to make us happy. When you're looking at your spouse to make you happy, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. I can have a happy marriage. I can have a loving marriage. But my happiness doesn't come from one person. It's found in Jesus. So, because we're unhappy, we tend to move from give me something to make me happy to I'm going to do something to make me happy. Say things like, I'm not really feeling the significance from my spouse these days. So I'm going to do something that can make me feel that way again. And I want to caution you, because if you're feeling this way, typically, if it's in your marriage, this is where a lot of divorces take place. And typically, we find it around the 10-year mark historically. Because we start looking for somebody else to make us happy when Jesus alone has the power to do that. People have been married for a while, and they're thinking, I'm going to have to go out. I'm going to have to go on my own. I'm going to have to find somebody or do something to bring that happy feeling back into my life. 
We do the same thing as Christians, though, right? Because typically it goes like this. God, I'm going to do something for you so that I'll feel happy again. Now, you may not know this. This may come as a shocker to you, but God didn't create marriage to make you happy. You may be saying, well, preacher, you sure are right because it's working. <laughs> God created marriage to kill you. And again, some of you are saying, preacher, it's working. And if that doesn't work, you know what he does? He gives you kids. I think what happened is the Trinity all got together when they were you know, plotting the creation of the world. And then after they created Adam and there was no suitable helper, and they got together and they said, how are we going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in, in mankind and have them to be selfless people? We want them to be blessed. And, and in, the, in the Greek, blessed is the word makareos, and it means to be happy. We want them to be happy. We want them to be blessed. So how can we do this? And I think the Holy Spirit said, hey, I got a great idea, guys. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Let's make them live with somebody. If that doesn't work, we'll give them kids, and that will surely kill them. Because it sure is hard to be selfish if you get up in the middle of the night to take care of a little newborn baby, ain't it? It's marriage, children, it all produces things in us like selflessness and, and, and genuine concern for somebody else's well-being that can do nothing to repay it to you. That's the intent of it. So ministers, what we do is when we get to this use me stage, um, we, we can do it for the wrong reason if we're not careful. And ministers have a tendency to do it a lot, like I mentioned earlier. We say, Lord, use me tonight so that people will think that God wants us to move past that. God will teach us to say, Lord, use me so that I can be a blessing to them without having to be in the spotlight at the same time. So how do we get past this and move on to maturity? Well, the third phase is we learn to say, search me. Search me. God, search me. Well, again, back to the prodigal son, Luke 15, verse 17, it says, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he woke up and realized, I am in the hog's pen and my daddy has a castle, I'll go back, right? He searched himself. He quit blaming everybody else for his circumstances. It wasn't the fact that the stock market failed. It wasn't anybody else who had put him there. It wasn't anybody else who had done him wrong. It didn't matter what anyone else had stolen from him. He, he came to his senses and realized it's nobody else's problem. We will never mature in the Lord if we have even one-tenth of a percent in us that is blaming everyone else for our circumstances. If we're playing the blame game, we are never going to mature because we stay right where we're at. And we've got to move past this. We've got to take responsibility for ourselves. It's my fault. It's your fault. We did it. You think back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The second thing that I mentioned a second ago that entered was uh, uh, shame, blame, and fame. Well, when blame entered in, we see that real evident, right? What did, what did Adam say? When God comes in, he says, it was the woman who did it. <laughs> Lord, it's her fault. And he is pointing her. She did it. Like a little kid, right? Trying to get the bunny ears up. No, 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 it was her. She, it was her. Mm -hmm. The woman you gave me, Lord, she caused me to sin. I don't think she put the apple in his mouth and said, eat, baby. Uh-uh. I think he said, hey, that really looks good. I want some too. Don't, don't hold out on me. And that's how the whole thing got started. 
Blame enters in. And it's been going on ever since. We see it in our marriages, because in our marriages, that's where we go. We blame our spouse, right? It's their fault that I'm not fulfilled. It's their fault that I'm not satisfied. It's their fault. We start blaming everybody else instead of stopping and turning and looking in me. So how do we get out of that blame game? Well, first of all, we learn to say, Lord, search me. And we say it like David wrote it in Psalm 139. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Search me. Search me. Because if we don't, there's two things that will stop our growth spiritually. Pride and insecurity. They will stop our growth immediately. Pride and insecurity, if we don't allow the Lord to root those out, we're never going to get past us. Those pride and insecurity will keep us from growing. They'll also keep us from praying, Lord, search me. Get to know me deep down. Help me to grow past this. We've got to move beyond it. When we allow uh, pride and insecurity in our lives, we become unreachable and unteachable from anything that God wants to do. Not just God, but anybody else. Have you ever known somebody that just was unteachable, you just couldn't get them to learn or move past something, typically there's a pride or an insecurity there that prevents them from being able to move past it. And we have to be able to let that go. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great theologian and World War II spy, said that when we stop listening to each other, it's just a matter of time before we stop listening to God. We've got to allow others to speak into our lives. That helps to turn on the searchlight. Those honest conversations help us to realize God wants to do something deep down inside of us. Some of you would say this, but pastor, 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 I know I need to forgive them. I get it. I know I do. But they really did do it. If you knew the story, you would agree with me. I don't need to know the story. I don't need to know the story that they really did. That doesn't change the game. Hear me when I say this. You are not responsible for someone else's actions. You are responsible for your actions and reactions to things that happen to you. And believe me, God will hold you accountable when you stand before him for how you responded, how you reacted in those moments. So we've got to search our own hearts. And we've got to do it frantically. Now, how many of you have ever dared to take your kids into those wild, unknown places like a kid's shopping store in the mall? Okay, we've done this from time to time, and I don't know about your kids, but my kids think it's the world's greatest thing to play hide-and-go-seek in the racks. So we go out. No, am no amen and over here from the cheap seats, buddy. <sighs> The fifth and sixth grade ministry is here today in service with Pastor Tina, and we're excited that they're here. That also means the young man I'm telling this story about sitting there too, so it's going to cost me a little money after service. So <laughs> we go to the mall one day, and we're shopping, and we're trying to buy some clothes, and Rachel's over here doing her thing, and Kate and Cecily are off doing their thing, and then, lo and behold, I look up, and don't see any of them. Hayes is still in the, the, the basket, but I, I don't see Kate or Cecily anywhere. So I do what every good dad does. Can't find me, kind of look around the last place where you keep looking as you make your way to the door to make sure some freak hadn't snatched them and headed out the door, right? Because I figure if anything else, I can see that pretty red hair waving in the wind as they try to get away from her and hear them yelling and screaming. So I get to the door and nothing. So now 
I'm a little bit relieved, but now I'm starting to get frustrated. Where are you at? Okay, says, and I'm trying to not make a scene in the store, you know what I'm saying? So you're, ho- you're hollering, but you're not hollering. Kate, says, where are you? Where? Where? And you're pulling back the last ones, and Kate, I find him. <laughs> Dad. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm over here, Dad. He heard me. He knows he doesn't want to get whooped, so he comes on. And Cecily, I finally find her, and when I peel back the curtains, she just starts dying laughing. <laughs> you couldn't find me, could you? Uh, that'll never be a problem again, young lady. Come on, you know. I am going to get one of those leashes and I'm going to tether you to it into the buggy. Never again are we going to go through this. You searched everywhere, high and low, peeled back every curtain, every, every piece of, uh, of, uh, of clothing that was hanging on a rack, just moved them all back because I was frantically searching for something valuable, desperate to find Where was it hidden? When was the last time that's the kind of search we brought our heart to before the Lord? God, I want you to get behind everything. I want you to pull back every piece of material, every curtain, everything that's hiding something in my life. I want you to peel it all back and search me deep down inside because that's the only way I'm going to be able to move on. So the question for us today is do we want to become bigger on the inside than we are on the outside? Because this is the key to say, God, search me deep down all the way around in everything that I am. And once we can reach the point of saying, God, Search me, then we can arrive at God, make me. Verse number 19, it says, I am no longer worthy to be called your child. Make me like one of your servants. When we get to this place where we can say, I know I'm your child, but make me a servant for you, that is when we have reached the height of maturity and it's the depth of servitude that brings us to that point of saying, this is where I am, this is who I am. Make me a servant in my marriage, in my family, in my church, in your kingdom. I don't care what you do with me just as long as I am a servant, a vessel fit for the master's hand. This is the stage where we can mature in the Lord. This is the place that our families can be healed and can be blessed and can be repaired because character, according to John Maxwell, character is is closing the gap between knowing and doing. This is where we reach maturity. This is where we can say, God, do this in me. So back to Job real quick. Job chapter 1 lists everything that he was given, right? It lists it all, okay? So I want you to remember this, okay? This right-hand section out here, everybody on that right-hand section, you guys represent the kids. He had 10 kids, seven boys and three girls. You guys remember that, okay? You guys are 10 children. All right, this outside left section, you guys are the sheep, 7,000 sheep. How many sheep? 7,000. Okay. You guys here in this section, you guys represent the camels. 3,000 camels. How many camels? 3,000 camels right here uh, in the middle. Sorry. You, You guys are the yoke of oxen. Okay. 500. Okay. How many? 500. Okay. This section right here. You guys... I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't mean this offensively, but you, y'all represent the donkeys, okay? Uh, how many donkeys? F- 500, okay? Fifth and sixth graders, how many donkeys? 500, okay, good, okay, good. Now, I want you to see something, okay? If you look at the end of Job, in Job chapter 42, we see how God restores him, right? 
after this nine-month journey, approximately nine months journey, what we see is pretty phenomenal because in verse 10 it says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. Doubled them, right? Again, so how many sheep? How many did he have? 7,000? Well, now it says that he has 14,000 at the end of his life. He owned 14,000 sheep. And then over here in the, in the, uh, the camels, it started out with how many? Okay, so he's got 6,000. 6,000 at the end of his life. How, how many yoke of oxen? He had, he had 500, now he has 1,000, right? Double, okay. And then you guys, how, how many donkeys? He had 500 at the end of his life, he had another 500. How many kids does it say that he had there? And said he had 10. Well, what's verse 13 say, Fran? Go ahead. It says that he also had seven sons and daughters, right? That's, that's 10, right? That's, now, wait a minute. How many does he have at the end of his life over here with the sheep? So he ended up with 14,000, right? When you double it. How many camels? So came 6,000. He had 1,000 when it was done, right? Donkeys, how many did he have? 1,000? And yet it says he only had 10 kids. It's a misnomer, right? Because do children live forever? So for 4,000 years, Job has been with the Lord with his 14, with his 14 sons and six daughters, a total of 20. Everything was mathematically doubled in his life. He had 10 before, he had 10 after. In heaven where they've lived forever, it's been doubled. Why am I making a big deal out of those numbers? Because once God saw that Job was bigger on the inside than he was on the outside, God blessed him with even more. Because Job matured. And at the beginning of verse 12, it's, or beginning of verse 10, it says that after he prayed for his friends, he prayed for those who tried to cause him to curse the Lord and, and to give up. You know, Job's not the only one who has a story like that. We've all heard of, of uh, Thomas Edison. One time, while he was in the process of inventing the light bulb, he was interviewed by a journalist who asked him if he felt like a failure and thought that he should give up. Give up. But Edison was perplexed by the question because he said, why would I give up? I know now 9,000 ways that the light bulb will not work. Well, just a thousand more tries later, and he did it. Shortly over 10,000 different attempts, and he succeeded. He did it. And that's a wonderful story about perseverance and all that, but that's not why he was able to do that. You see, one day when he was a kid, the story goes that he came home and handed his, paper a mother, uh, handed his mother a paper and told her, my teacher gave me this paper and said, I'm only to give it to you. She opened it read it and began to cry and she read the paper aloud to him and it said your child is a genius and this school is no good for him we don't have good enough teachers or um, uh, good enough training for him please teach him yourself well years later his mother passes he's going through some of the family affairs paperwork and stuff and notices in the corner of her desk there where she would take care of the bills is a folded up piece of paper. He opens it up and begins to read. And as he does, he just cries and weeps for hours and hours and hours. Because the original paper that was given to his mother said, your son is addled or mentally ill. We won't let him come to school here any, 
school here anymore. Now, a much older Thomas Edison cries, and he wrote that day in his diary, Thomas Alva Edison was an adult child by who, by a hero mother, became the genius of the century. Friends, you never know what fight you choose to fight and the difference it's going to make in your kids. You never know how making that positive impact is going to make such a difference that it's going to take an adult, mentally ill child in the world's perception and turn them into a genius that's going to make a difference forever. Amen? I want, you, I want all of us to be bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. I want all of us to walk with integrity and know the Lord like Job, like Edson's in the, in the story, that characteristic. I want us to all embrace that. But it starts with being honest. So with every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment, if you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, man, I've heard you talk and I, I really want to know this Lord that I have felt in the room today. I really want to know him. I want to experience him but I've allowed sin to separate me, or I've never known him at all. But today, I want to commit my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you just slip up a hand right where you're at? All right? Okay? Yeah. Who else? Okay? Listen, in just a moment, we're going to have a prayer team that are going to be around here at the front, and we want to pray with you. But before we do, I want all of us to pray this prayer and pray it out loud so that you can hear yourself so you can hear yourself pray Father in heaven I ask you to forgive my sins I ask you Lord Jesus to make me whole to help me have right standing with you to move away from sin and to embrace the ways of God in the name of Jesus Amen. Now listen, if you prayed that, the Bible makes it clear that that simple prayer is enough to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, he is, that you're saved and you are. That's simple, right? But the next step is we've got to move beyond that if we're going to mature. You can't stay there. So as we mature, that's where the rubber meets the road. So one more time with your head bowed and your eye closed, just by uplifted hand, if you'd say, Pastor, I'm, I'm working through this and I need to mature, would you slip up a hand? I find myself in one of these phases and I need help. Okay? Okay? Here's what we're going to do. All across the room, if you would, please stand to your feet. Our elders and prayer team are going to make their way down around these altars.